This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Line to the center field. He ripped it. And look at this ball. Go to the wall. O'Neill Cruz. He wants three. Look at him fly. He is out at third. But he picks up three runs batted in on an absolute missile to center. And a roller. Cruz. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that was a clothesline. And O'Neal Cruz, another hit. That'll bring in Vogel back. What a night for the young stars to shine. O'Neal Cruz, four runs batted in. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, and we have a lot to cover on today's episode, starting with the MLB Draft Combine, which took place last week. Jim Callis was there on site in San Diego for an action-packed week. We'll recap some of the top performers from the second annual Draft Combine. I'll also have an interview with one of the standouts from the Combine, Connor Prelip. Uh, and we're going to, speaking of Connor Prelip and college baseball, we'll talk about the College World Series. And uh, we're going to take a look ahead at the MILB on MLB.tv slate for this week. Got a bunch of great games coming your way. We can't possibly not talk about O'Neill Cruz and his 2022 debut, which as we're recording this, uh, just happened last night and kind of has the baseball world abuzz. And we'll wrap up by answering a question from Sebastian. All right, let's go backwards to start here to the Combine, which took place last week. Jim, you were in San Diego on site, had 250-plus of the top 2022 draft prospects on hand. Uh, I think, what, what was the number, 129, 139? I think it was 139 uh, were guys who were on our top 200 originally, although that did include a handful of guys who wound up going to the College World Series so they weren't there. I, I didn't get a final official count, but it was it was about 60, 70% of the guys on our draft top 200 list, as well as a number of guys that Jonathan and I have already talked about adding when we expand that list next week. They're there. So, I mean, it. I'll say my, my biggest impression of the combine compared to last year was I think the event's building a lot of positive momentum. And I think when you do these things for the first time, there's a lot going on. And when you do them for the second time, you learn – and I, I think the biggest improvement from year one to year two, well, I, I, I shouldn't say biggest because there were a lot of them. I, I think you obviously had more players come. I think the word of mouth on the event was very good. I think the fact that they changed the rule, like last year they wanted players to take medicals and there was no incentive for a player to take a medical because if you take a medical examination and something shows up, there's no protection there. So like why were players going to do that? So very few did. This year they changed the rule. And if you went to the combine and you did a full physical there, 
then you're guaranteed when you get drafted 75% of your slot for the pick where you're taken. And of the 250 players there, I think roughly 70%, maybe 75% of them took medicals. Um, and it's interesting. I, I learned while I was out there, guys, I didn't realize this. You can't cut a deal with a player who does a medical for less than 75%. So if I want to take a senior in the third round and give him 50% of the bonus slot, uh, for moving him up in the draft, I can't do that if he took a physical. Like so, it, it, it's absolute protection. So, so that was teams were, were happy that they got medical information on players because they they've been wanting to do that for a while. But I also think one of the biggest positives too was having it in the big league ballpark. So many teams and even the players mentioned it was it was nice. Everything was there. They, they, each team had a suite at Petco Park, one of the suites there. And that's where they did the player interview. So unlike last year, where just because of the way it was set up, the USA Baseball Training Facility in Cary is a great facility, but there wasn't place for 30 teams to interview guys at the facility. So you had games at the facility 20 minutes from the hotel where the interviews were going on, which was across the street from the convention center where they were doing some of the strength and performance testing. You were able to do all that at Petco. And I think that was a huge positive um, they got a lot more players there this year. Um, so I, I really think like it was, it, it took a, you know, I, you know, I think last year was a successful event, especially considering they were trying to launch it. But I think most people would agree who were there, if not everyone, that they thought that this was an even better event in, in 2022. Right. Which, which makes sense. You know, I, I did a story right before the combine on Henry Davis going to the combine and how that, you know, added to the sort of information that, you know, several teams had, but obviously the Pirates, you know, and and everyone in the Pirates organization is all in on the combine and think it's great. And you know, one of the, th- you know, one of the things I thought was interesting when I talked to Ben Sherrington, the general manager, I didn't end up using this quote in the story because it didn't fit, but he, he said that he, you know, over the last couple of years had had conversations with Kevin Colbert, who for years was the Steelers general manager, uh, you know, because everyone I think looks at the NFL draft combine and you know and how successful and popular it is that you know there are a couple of things and we always talk about comparing and contrasting the drafts and the the general public knowledge about the players attending obviously is much higher for football but also they've been doing this for a long time uh so they've had years and years and years to kind of tweak and uh, I don't want to say perfect, but in terms of it being, uh, you know, a, a good television product and and being something that people want to check out. And I thought that this year, you know, they did the the network did a, a very nice job of um, uh, of presenting it. You know, because there are a lot of moving pieces. Uh, with, with all the the things that were being done from you know the the strength and conditioning and the speed and then the on field stuff, uh, I, I thought they took a very nice step forward. And you know I, I've used this term a lot, but kind of thinking of it as uh, as one stop shopping that's mutually beneficial both to the players who go and and the team and, and all thirty teams. Uh, because of you know that the stuff that you were talking about, Jim, with the the medical, um, you know, the the ability to take the medical and the interviews. That even if a player wants to go and not do that much or any on field stuff, there is still a benefit for both sides for a guy to come and get his medical done and interview with teams. And uh, I, I think they'll they'll continue to look at it, and it's just going to become more streamlined and become a a, a better uh, event. And I do agree that having it, you know 
in, in a big league city in a big league ballpark uh, makes uh, you know makes a, a lot of sense in, in terms of ease of access and and the facilities and things of that nature. And I do think I do think if you ask the teams and the players, they would tell you the most valuable part of the whole event is the interviews. Like that, you know, it, it's funny. Like I don't the, the most of the guys who are there, you've seen them perform a bunch. So I don't know that the on field stuff moves the needle a lot on a lot of guys, but I've kind of come around and this year I kind of looked at the on-field stuff as a way to promote the game, like on MLB Network, promote players that that the average fan may not know a lot about to kind of set the stage for the draft. And I think MLB Network does a tremendous job of that. I mean, I, I know I was part of the coverage, so I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but just, you know, how Greg Amsinger keeps everything straight when he's, you know, kind of basically hosting the coverage for nine and a half hours for two days. And, you know, we, we've marveled at this all the time, Jonathan. I mean, Harold Reynolds, like, I think Harold's 60 or 61, his energy, he's got the energy of like three 20 year olds. I guess that's how he gets to 60, but like (laughs) Harold must interviewed like 40 guys on Friday and he's enthusiastic, like sincerely enthusiastic about it. And I think Harold also behind the scenes, like I I don't think we get Cam Collier and Termar Johnson taking BP at the combine. If they didn't have a close relationship with Harold and Harold said, look, you know, you guys should come out here. It'd be great for the event. And they did. I mean, Cam Collier, because you know, because of his relationship with Harold, went from the Cape Cod League, flew to San Diego, and then flew back to the Cape Cod League to continue that season when he was done. So, um, but yeah, I, I just I, I think it, it's a good way to promote the game, and there's a lot of value for the teams and the players. Yeah, I think from the uh, from the outside perspective, watching it on the network, uh, it was you know it was really good. It was well produced. It was it was really good TV. It was good good baseball TV, um, and. Jim, you, you mentioned Collier and, and Johnson being there. And I mean, Tamar Johnson just has like that star quality about him. You, and you can kind of see it, you know, when he arrived, there was footage of him arriving and he just seemed to be kind of the, the star of the show. I mean, the, all the other players seem to really like him. Uh, he's just got like an impossibly likable personality. Uh, his interview was fantastic. And he just he just seems to have that star quality. No, he, he definitely does. And it was nice. I mean, both those guys, I mean, you had a lot of guys who were sitting there in Petco and, you know, they're measuring everything on StatCast and trying to see how far they could hit the ball and, you know, crush the ball off the building in left field. And, and both Tamar and, and Cam Collier just went out there and took a professional BP and worked the ball around the park. And Tamar wasn't trying to launch anything, but he – you know, showed some pretty easy power to the pull side. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a little sneak preview of the, of the next mock draft, which will drop Wednesday night and be out Thursday. I think I'm going Tamar Johnson, number one to the Orioles. Not not necessarily because he blew them away at the combine, but um, on the field or anything. But I, I'm going Tamar Johnson, 1-1 one, one to the Orioles, I think, in the next mock. Twitter's going to love that. I just, you know, it's funny. I, I think it makes a lot of sense too because he's he's a, his talent belongs there. The bat is that good. I know taking a second baseman, a guy who projects a second baseman one one doesn't feel normal. You know that just doesn't happen. But the bat, it's it's a it's a very special bat. Plus, I think you know you could get you you save more money with Tamar Johnson than you're going to save with say Drew Jones or Jackson Holiday. And I also, you know, from what I'm here starting to hear a little bit, I think Tamar Johnson wants to go one one. And and I think he'd be willing to cut that deal so he could go one one. So, um, man, it's just fun to watch him hit. And he, and, you, and you like you said, Jason, he was great on the desk with with Harold and, and Greg. I mean, he seemed like he'd been doing interviews for 
you know, 20, 25 years. I, MLB Network should sign him up to a futures contract when he's done playing and just lock him up right now so he can be on MLB Tonight, I guess, what, 2040 or so, maybe 2045. They, 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 they should get that deal done now. We, uh, we knew, right? We, we knew he's a friend of the podcast. But I think one of the things that's impressive, and, and, and we've talked about this even previewing the combine, right? You're not going to take too much away from one BP session, but um, – you know, this is a guy who we have heard universally was really tough to scout this spring because of the level of competition and he didn't see good pitching. That's why he's playing in this wood bat league uh, in the Atlanta area. Uh, I think that another kid could have come in to a situation like this combine and put too much pressure on himself to, to do things that he you know, isn't comfortable doing, uh, you know, uh, he naturally obviously has, has power to, to that pull side. As you, as you said, Jim, we saw it, we saw it a lot in, uh, in, in Denver last year during the, you know, the stuff in and around the high school all American game, but no all-star game. And, uh, but I could see another kid who's like, well, I, you know, I've heard, you know, people didn't really see me, uh, that great. Uh, they're kind of relying on what I did last summer, which is plenty good. But he could have put pressure on himself on TV, taking BP in front of all 30 teams to do too much. And he didn't do that. I mean, I think that shows confidence. Uh, I am curious to see what the reaction is going to be to you putting him 1-1. Uh, and it does take, if, if the Orioles do go in that direction, there is a strength and conviction to take a five foot eight second baseman, number one overall. Now, I don't, have a problem with it because I like you think he is really really going to hit I don't think it's necessarily going to take him all that long uh, even though he is a high schooler to to get there because of that that hit tool but we haven't seen a number one pick of that ilk ever I don't think but I digress is it accurate to say uh, that that type of setting at the combine where he's just taking BP isn't even really uh, highlighting the strength, his strengths at the plate, because he's he's known for the, his bat the ball skills, his, his uh, plate coverage, his plate discipline. BP doesn't really test those sort of things. No, you're right. I mean, it, it's not like he's facing guys throwing, you know, 90 or whatever, 90 plus, you know, in a game and making adjustments and going with the pitch or, or turning on a good inside fastball. Yeah, I mean... But he was still impressive nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I was going to say, Dan O'Dell was giving me a hard time because we had a segment where we were supposed to talk about who had stood out in BP, like at some point during the six and a half hour broadcast. And uh, and Tamar was just getting ready to take BP. And I'm like, well, I'm going to take Tamar. And Dan's like, he hasn't even hit, taken BP yet. And we weren't on the air for this. He's like, how can you pick a guy when he hasn't taken BP? I was like, because we both know Tamar's going to look great in BP. So I'm just going to talk about how great Tamar looked in BP. Um, and he looked great in BP. But Dan was giving me a hard time. Like, you can't pick a guy who hasn't taken BP yet. And I was like, he'll have taken it before by the time we do this segment. So I, I feel confident he'll, he'll look <laughs> I, good. I, I, <laughs> but, I, I was just saying, I think the only thing BP shows, and not that people have, you know, is it's another opportunity for him to show that there's raw power there. I mean, and, and uh, there aren't questions about it with him. That's why we haven't ranked as highly, but for those, you know, who hadn't seen him, you know, or even people, folks watching on, on TV at, at home uh, and see a guy instead of, of his size, uh, he can show off that there's raw pop for him to, to tap into. This isn't going to be a guy who's going to just slap the ball the other way. He, he 
perfectly happy and capable of doing that to, to your point, Jason, in terms of play coverage and bat to ball skills. But there is no question that he knows how to turn on pitches, uh, you know, and, and use that pull power, especially, uh, you know, when, when the opportunity arises and he can show a little bit of that in, in a BP session. Again, it's not, no one's making decisions off of this one session, but that I think is the one thing you can show in, in, in you know, a, a setting like that. His name didn't uh, dot the leaderboard on the list of the highest exit velocities, longest distances, hardest hit percentages, Jim, but uh, his name was, certainly did appear uh, in, in on those lists, uh, although not really necessarily at the top of them. But let's talk about some guys who did uh, stand out in that way or, or guys who stood out otherwise to you. And I know you did a, you did a story on 10 players who sit, stood out at the draft combine. Uh, you listed them alphabetically. You took the easy way out. <laughs> let's rank them. Let's rank them. Because I'm ranking them based, I'm ranking them based on batting okay. practice in a three-and-a-half-minute bullpen. So come on. All right, fine. <laughs> You can you can go alphabetical. But is there is there one one guy in particular who stood out the most to you? Yeah, I mean the guy who I was most looking forward to see because I've been writing about him for three years, and I, t- I I I will pat myself on the back for this one. I, I told the producers of MLB Network I was like, you have to have this guy throw on TV because he's going to hit 100 miles an hour. And when Ben Joyce decided he wasn't going to throw. I was like, he's going to be the hardest thrower. You got to get Jacob Mizorowski on TV. And, you know, Mizorowski a guy who was on our, our 2020 um, draft list, but like he hadn't really been seen a whole lot. You know, he had a hamstring injury on the showcase circuit leading into that year in high school. Then we had the COVID year. So you didn't really get to see him then. Then he goes to Crowder junior college last year and he blows out the meniscus in his knee and barely pitches. And, He's six foot seven. He's got a ton of spin and extension on his fastball. You know, he he hadn't pitched a whole lot, and he was kind of wild at times early in the season. And it's funny talking to scouts. There's some guys who absolutely love him, and other guys are like, ah, he's wild. I'm just not on that. Whatever. He was really good down the stretch for Crowder. They went to the Junior College World Series. And um, so anyway, he, he went out and pitched, and he was easily the most impressive pitcher on Friday. He threw eight fastballs in his bullpen. They were the eight hardest pitches that anybody threw that day. I, I didn't parse the Saturday data really carefully. They may have been the eight hardest pitches anybody threw. He averaged 99.8 miles an hour. He topped out at 100.7. He had the highest spin rate on a fastball. He had the highest average rate on a spin ball, uh, on a fastball. He had two of the three hardest sliders. He threw a slider over 90 miles an hour. And again, I mean, it's a bullpen. Like we were saying about tomorrow, you aren't seeing him against batters. You aren't seeing how they react. But just in terms of pure stuff, it was it, I'd heard so much about this guy for you know two years now. It, it was fun to watch him on the mound, and he looked great. Jim, I want you to refer to when he pitches from now on that he throws a spin ball. Spin ball, yeah. It's like uh, yeah, it's like it's like glory days. You know, he throws a speed ball and a spin ball <laughs> and a change ball. Jim, give us some, some other guys who who stood out to you. Yeah, I mean, in the game action, you know, they they, they played a couple games which were really controlled scrimmages. Last year they played actual games; these were controlled scrimmages. The fun, the, the the most fun guy. I was gonna say funnest. I'm gonna use all kinds of new words today. The most fun guy was Gerangelo Saint Jay, who who had made our preseason top 100. Jonathan, he was one of your guys, but yep. you know, switch pitcher from Florida, and just super. It was fun to watch him because you know when you think switch pitcher, 
the only real switch pitcher in modern major league history is Pat Venditti, who threw about 86 from the right side and 83 from the left side. Well, in his inning of work, you know, we saw Sanchez uh, sat there and, and hit 96 miles an hour with his fastball, breaking ball up to 80 miles an hour. And then from the left side, that, that was right-handed. From the left side, he was up to 92 with a, a mid-70s breaker. Um, and, you know, it's, it's legit stuff from both sides. He struck out five of the six hitters he faced, two lefty, three righty, gave up one walk. Um, and it was interesting. I, I, I don't know, Jonathan. I, I think he's going to wind up going to college at Mississippi State. You know, he's not super big. He's 5'11", 170. I think he's more... I don't know. Would you say sixth to tenth rounder if you're just drafting him purely on talent right now? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And he's not on our top 200 right now. Is it? You know, people kind of stopped talking about him. We snuck him into that top 100, and some of it was just the fascination. Um, but th- it, the thing that I think is interesting, and, and you know, as you outlined there, this is not a trick, right? It, you know, it, with all due respect to Pat Venditti, who made it to the big leagues. Um, as a result of that, it, that was kind of smoke and mirrors, right? And his ability to to switch back and forth. But like St. Jay's got legitimate stuff from from both sides, um, based on how he threw the combine. He's actually throwing harder left-handed than than he he had been, which you know, which stands to reason. But I mean, I think this is a guy who has an opportunity to to do this for quite some time. I don't. I don't see him as being a guy, who, even if he goes to Mississippi State. Now, you know, maybe if he starts having some command issues or arm trouble one way, he, he focuses on one. But I, there isn't a need to do that. This isn't like, you know, sometimes you see guys who switch hit in high school and then they stop switch hitting. Uh, Daniel Susak was a switch hitter and you know, was listed as a switch hitter for, for a long time, the Arizona catcher. And uh, he, he doesn't switch hit anymore. Uh, you know, I don't think you're going to see St. Jay stop doing this because he is effective from from both sides. Um, you, know, you know, Jim, I don't know from what you saw at the combine. Like uh, he can, the reports I had was that he, you know, he's he spins the ball, he throws a spin ball uh, a little bit better from the left side, um, but throws harder from the right side. I mean, that, velo wise, that that checks. But I don't know if you you know recall whether or not his breaking stuff was a little bit better left handed, but. This is this is a legitimate guy, you know, a guy f- with both arms, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the stuff's good enough left-handed. You know, the le- the righty stuff is better stuff than the lefty stuff. He, he it was small sample size. He spun the ball about two hundred RPMs faster from the right yeah. side too. But it you could get you can get college guys out with the stuff he has from the left side too. It, it's not like you said. This isn't a novelty act. You know that you know it's going to stop. Like I, this guy's going to legitimately switch. And it's a cool story. I mean, it was it was cool talking to him. You know, his father was a professional catcher in the Netherlands, and he liked wearing his dad's catcher's gloves. So he he was a natural lefty, but he wanted to throw right-handed. And his dad would hammer nails into baseballs and have him throw them at a tire. Great. And that if to try to get the ball to stick in the tire, like the nail would stick in the tire to to work on his accuracy. And he yeah, I guess he switched pitch for Curacao in the 2016 Little League World Series. But just a really fun kid to talk to. I, I think they're going to love him, Mississippi State. Uh, so, so he was another guy. He he was the most interesting guy in terms of game action. Uh, you know, the best prospect he pitched in the game was J.R. Ritchie from Washington. He pitched well. Um, another one of your guys, Jonathan from Virginia, um, right-hander Jack mm-hmm. O'Connor pitched well too. Um, you know, the, the pitchers pretty much dominated 
the, the, the two scrimmage games on, on the Wednesday and Thursday? As far as the uh, statistical leaderboards went, uh, there was one name that stood out on the highest exit velocities and uh, longest distances. Uh, one name that was shared by three people, Jones, uh, Spencer, Jason, and Jared were all over the leaderboards in, in both of those categories. Uh, highest hard hit percentage, uh, nine out of nine, Dominic Keegan of Vanderbilt, uh, hard hit balls, paintball that had an exit velocity of 95 miles per hour or higher. Uh, Dominic Keegan and Mason Neville uh, of Henderson, Nevada, the two that had 100% hard hit percentages. And then uh, highest sweet spot percentage, sweet spot being uh, launch angle of between 8 and 32 degrees. Uh, Adonis Guzman, a catcher, catching prospect uh, from Connecticut at 91%. Jarrett Curtis, which is kind of interesting, Jim, because uh, not exactly known for that, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he's known more for his speed. I mean, I think the guys who like him think there's some offensive talent in there, but, but Jarrett Curtis was the fastest player, at least of all the 30-yard the dash times I saw um, there. But, yeah, he, 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 he stung the ball pretty good at, at times during BP. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, Curtis with his speed, and, you know, Guzman is my guy, and he is a catch-and-throw, uh, you know, plus arm, but people aren't sure if he's going to hit. Now, a 10 out of 11 sweet spot percentage uh, you know, at a combine workout is not going to move the needle too much, <laughs> but it's some information. He's a lock, um, he's a lock now, John. Yes, he's. I'm going to put him in my next first round mock. But he's he is an he is a very interesting catching prospect. Uh, with the question being, is he going to hit? And some people, you know, in the area really think he is going to hit uh, with some power. And this is just a small sample of his ability to barrel up the baseball. Jim, was there anyone who surprised you in any way? Um, I think you by asking <laughs> me that question. Um, uh, we can leave it at that. Not, not really, honestly. I mean, the guys who hit the ball the hardest and the furthest in BP were guys we knew had power. And, you know, I knew Mizrowski could throw hard. I mean... I think Kenya Huggins had the best pitching display on Saturday after I left. I was just looking at the data, but like and he, he's a Chipola mm -hmm. junior college player as well, along with Cam Collier. But we, we knew he could throw hard. No, I mean I don't. I, it's just it's a setting where you're 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 throwing a three and a half minute bullpen, or you're taking BP and infield, which I mean we saw a lot of these guys, Jonathan, take BP the high school guys at the high school All America game last year. Um, so no, I I I, I don't think anybody. Like, like, made you go, oh, geez, I didn't realize the guy was that fast or that powerful or, or or threw that hard. I mean, I think guys, you know, for the most part, kind of showed what they could do. All right. Well, one guy who showed what he could do, someone we haven't really talked about yet, but we are going to talk to momentarily. Jim had a chance to talk to Alabama lefty Connor Prelip. We'll have a listen into that interview coming up next on the MLB Pipeline podcast. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Jim Callis with Emily Pipeline here with uh, Connor Prelip from uh, University of Alabama left-hander. And Connor, I've been kind of hyping the combine is like you're kind of the must-see attraction here. Uh, you know, if people don't know your background, you know, you were, still are one of the top pitchers in the draft. Like you had Tommy John surgery last May. You didn't pitch the season with the Crimson Tide. You've thrown one bullpen. Teams are really anxious to see you again. So I know your, your Friday bullpen is going to be kind of a must-watch for, for everybody here. Was it a pretty easy choice to come to the combine, just with the opportunity to showcase yourself for all 30 teams? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Like just like my one bullpen, I knew I could do better than another one. Like the combine was just like the best choice for me, and like it's, I've had a great time out here, and like me and all the guys, it's been a great time out here. And then you threw the one bullpen. I think it was what May 23rd, like right before the SEC tournament started. How? I mean, how? I mean, I know it's not a game situation, but how much were you looking forward to getting back on the mound? in front of teams after not pitching for, you know, 12, 13 months. Yeah, no, I haven't really, not pitching for like almost two years now, like getting in front of the mound and like getting some adrenaline, like game adrenaline, game like adrenaline back was like, that's what I was most looking forward to. And then just like all this work I put into my rehab, I was excited to show that off. And I'm excited to show more of it off here at the combine also. How'd you feel that when I saw it rain? I guess it wasn't a torrential downpour, but like your first time back on the mound and you don't even get Nice weather, but were you pretty pleased with how that turned out? Yeah, my first bullpen went exactly as how I wanted to. Just like show that good command, my velocity is all right, and just like the rain wasn't fun, but like <laughs> yeah, not much I could do about that. How? I mean, I've got to imagine. Well, both your college career and the draft process did not go how you necessarily thought when you when you came to Alabama. I mean, you know, this spring. I mean. You know, you didn't get to pitch, and you're getting to throw a couple bullpens. Um, you know, how, I guess, what were you, I mean, thinking draft process was going to be when you got to Alabama, and, and how strange has it been to go through it without not really being able to pitch a whole lot? I guess, yeah, like when I showed up to campus, I expected, like, to have, like, a good draft experience. Like, I, I believed in myself. I thought I would have a good college career, but, like, the way it turned out, it sucks, but, like, I've just been able to attack my rehab like the best possible way I can and just look forward to the summer and Dan or Dan? Nice hey, to Dan. But yeah, just like attack. I'm excited to start pitching again after these two years, but like. Was Cal Quantrill kind of the template for, for what you did? I mean, I'm, I don't know how much you know about his situation, but he was at Stanford and he kind of went through the same thing back in 2016 where he had Tommy John surgery the year before wound up not being able to pitch or you know if he had been it would have been at the very end of the season and he wound up going eighth overall in the draft is that kind of the path that you guys had had laid out oh uh, yeah you know, to try to fall like that type of scenario um was for sure like a path that we thought about and like if i like uh just like just like yeah that's that path for sure and then like just like 
there's no point in an injury like this. There's no reason to rush something. Like, to, like it, it's yeah, I wanted to have a great college career, but my goal was just to have a nice, like, big league career. So, like, just pushing my, like, didn't think it was the smartest thing to pitch this year. What would have been, I mean, if you had tried to pitch this year, you would have been coming back, and it would have been either the very tail end of the season or the SEC tournament, and then, you know, you got to guard against, you know, I'm sure, you know, it's part of the rehab. It's like, okay, you're throwing bullpens, but don't, don't max out. Don't, you know, and like, if you get in a competitive situation, yeah, no. like, it, it's, it's just a very tough call. I mean, you know, in just your college career, I mean, obviously nobody saw COVID coming, but like, that freshman year, you were so good for, I guess it was four starts, right? And then COVID comes and gets shut down, and, and then you got hurt. Uh, you know, well, you got hurt what your first start of yeah, your sophomore year, sophomore. and then you try to pitch yeah, a couple times. A couple rehab starts, and then by the end of the year, had Tommy John. Going back to 2020, I mean, obviously everybody dreams of going to college and having success. Like, I don't, I don't think you even gave up a run. You struck out like 35 guys in 21 innings. I mean, did you surprise yourself at how much you dominated right off the bat? Uh, a little bit surprised at first, but I always knew like I had that in me, like the possibility to like accomplish what I did. Like I never, I wasn't super surprised that it happened. Like I always believed in myself, and like I knew what I was capable of, and I was about to show it off. And then, when you got hurt the next year, had your arm been bothered? Was it something where your arm had been bothering you, and you had an inkling like, oh, like doesn't actually feel right, or was it one of these deals where you threw a pitch? And you immediately knew something was wrong. I mean, had you had any arm problems before you got hurt? Uh, no. Like coming into that season, that fall, I, I had a good fall. Every my arm felt great. That preseason, my arm felt great. Had a good preseason, and then just about yeah, just after that start, trying to play catch that week is when I knew something was wrong. So it wasn't specifically one pitch, no. and you knew right away, but just after the yeah, start. After my first start, I knew so, something. And how hard is that? I mean, you know, because you don't get a full season your freshman year, and there's high expectations your sophomore year, and you get one start before you heard him, that had to be incredibly frustrating. Yeah, no, I, I had, like, having my freshman year as I did with all the expectations and then just missing the last two years with still expectations and then just, yeah, it was really rough these last two years. How, I mean, I, I've talked to guys who've gone through it. How grueling is the rehab process? I mean, it sounds like it's a lot of work to get back to where you are, but just all the work that gets put in, a lot of times guys are, you know, stronger, you know, the, the classic best shape of your life, but just the rehab process. Like, I know there's like, I know you know this, but like the fans think, oh, you have Tommy John surgery and you throw harder. And it's not the surgery that makes you throw harder. It's going through the rehab yeah. and getting stronger that I think that makes you, makes you throw harder in a, lot, in a lot of cases. But I mean, how grueling is that rehab process? Like, you know you're having Tommy John surgery and it's like, well, now you got 12 months of rehab before you're really going to get back on the mound and, and, and throw full tilt again. Yeah, like the physical therapy isn't terrible, but like I'd say like definitely like how you said, you get stronger. It's not from just because you had Tommy John surgery. It's because you're doing physical therapy for five months straight every day, just getting your shoulder and arm stronger. And like that's probably about like how you see guys throw harder after the surgery. And just like, yeah, and like the grueling part, like probably the worst part is just you just not be able to play like playing a game you played your whole life and you just can't play anymore. And I guess it's got to be tough too. I mean, being in the situation, you're, you're rehabbing at, at Alabama and you're around the team and they're going through fall practice and they're getting ready, you know, for the season. They go through the season and you're just, you know, I mean, did that make it even tougher? I mean, to, I mean I'm mean, i sure you're close to your teammates, but like, man, like, I really wish I could get out there and pitch, but 
the timetable just doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, it's for sure being around the team and stuff is hard, but like, you just gotta, you gotta support them too. Like, it's not their fault. You gotta hurt. You right. Gotta support them. Like, do whatever you can with the team. Like, in that situation. And then, I mean, I know you know you'll pitch a bullpen here, and at some point, you know, yeah, after the draft, turn pro. Like, I don't know if it'll be this year, fall, whatever. How much do you look forward to facing live hitters again? Because it's yeah. been yeah, almost like, a year. Yeah. Now, since I was in the last game, but yeah, like. Really looking forward to facing live hitters whenever that whenever that timetable is, and it's like yeah, just really looking forward to facing hitters. So I know have you have you done many interviews here at the combine yet? Uh yes, I've had uh four, three so far. Three and so how far. many more do you have scheduled before you go? Uh, I've probably got around 15 more scheduled. Are teams like the couple you've done? Have teams asked you about the decision not to pitch? I mean, is anybody? Questioning uh, that at all, or just having you explain the rationale? Yeah, I would just explain. They all, like professional baseball. Like when I talked to teams like this fall, like they all understood like what I was yeah. doing. Like their process is 14 to 15 months before their right. plan. So like, to, like if I would have came back like 10 and a half, 12 months, like yeah, like they all understand. Yeah, no, I mean, like we were saying, it makes sense. I mean, to to rush back and then you're like in the middle of the SEC tournament, and, you know, maybe regional bits on the line, like. You get amped up. I mean, the competitor to you like might get ahead of. Hey, we need yeah. to not like max out or you know overthrow a little bit. Like I guess that can be kind of tough. I, I know. Like when I talk to scouts, everybody raves about your slider. You know, it's high spin. It's hard. It's got two plane depth. And I was looking back at my my scouting notes from when you were in high school, coming out of Wisconsin, and I had like 3,100 RPM breaking ball. Have you all, like when did you learn the breaking ball and how, I mean, how long has it been that much of a weapon for you? I would say like once I started throwing like above like 85 and then like 85 to 90 range like it just like my curveball got harder and my spin rate got harder and then like ever since I've gotten to college it's gotten better. So do you consider it a curve and not a slider? Or? Yeah, I consider it just because like I've always thrown like when I grew up I've had the same grip since I was yeah. 10 years old so like. I've always called it a curveball, and then it just, as it's got harder and harder, people just call it a slider. It's, it's funny because it's like, you know, when people talk about, like, it's also like you get some breaking balls that are in between, and there's like, in my mind, there's always like, there, there's slur a slurve can be good or bad. You can have the slurve is where it doesn't really break that much, but it's, it's got like curveball velocity, it's like upper 70s, and it's not big break. But you have like the really good combination where you have like the slider velocity. And like the two plane downer curveball break, and like I don't know, I don't know how anybody hits that. Like, <laughs> like, how do you gear up for that? And then, I mean, does it feel? I mean, I know you've thrown more obviously on the side than just one bullpen, but I mean, do you feel like the that pitch is back where you know where you're comfortable with it again? I mean, yeah, I'd say like all my even my changeup and my fastball, all my pitches feel the same. Like I, I don't feel like I've lost a certain pitch or anything like that. Was there any trepidation when you start to you know throw off a mound again? Like when you're like. And I'm sure at first you're not throwing 100%, but like when they're like, okay, now you can snap off the curveball. Like, was there a little trepidation uh, at all, or? Uh, no, I wasn't too scared to rip anything off or throw as hard as I needed to. Like, I was, my eyes felt normal. Like, my mindset was fine. I wasn't afraid to throw as hard as I could or snap my curveball as hard as I could. And do you throw your fastball? Is it a two-seamer or a four-seamer? Just a four-seamer. Okay, and it's got like some run and downhill. Yeah, a little ball. run and stays on playing ball. Yeah, but again, I mean, it's it's like. You keep that on plane, and then I'm looking for the fastball, and you drop your 88 mile an hour curveball on me. I'm in, I'm in trouble. Um, and then, how much before you got hurt? How much did you, did you throw your changeup? Did you need it much in college, or did you not get to that point? Uh, like I guess coming back, like my changeup, I started throwing more. Like my freshman year, I threw it a little bit more. 
And then I really threw it like my sophomore fall is what I really worked on because like our pitching coach, he would like challenge us, like he'd take away my slider for the day and that's all I'd be able to work with is my changeup. And that's why I'd say I got like better at that with my changeup. Gotcha, and it's just the three pitches, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so, like at the combine here, I mean, what's the gameplay? Do you throw for five minutes? Is it a five-minute bullpen? Is that? Um, I haven't discussed the bullpen, but uh, I've just I've talked about like I'm just gonna throw like do my like normal bullpen routine I've been doing all like, yeah whole build up. Yeah, and is it, I mean, is there still some temptation like when you're setting like this to like throw a little harder or snap the curve off a little bit more? Or, I mean, is it hard to kind of temper that and say just be myself and? Oh uh, yeah, it's definitely different. Just throwing with, when there's nobody watching you throw your bullpen, yeah. but like it's when you when you have that many people watching you, you get a little bit of like it feels like you're almost like in a game again, like with everyone watching. It's like game like adrenaline. I don't know if there, but is there any pressure? Do you feel any pressure? I mean, it's a weird situation because I mean, teams are going to draft you on the basis of more than two bullpens. Obviously, you know the one you threw in this one, but I mean, do you feel any pressure? Like, hey, I'm throwing a bullpen in front of 30 teams and a couple hundred scouts on national TV and you know I haven't really pitched that much in a while or you just look at it like I'm just gonna throw my normal bullpen and I know my stuff's pretty good and yeah. I don't mostly, have to try to do too much. Yeah mostly just like trusting my stuff and like I've been like even though I haven't pitched in two years I've pitched in front of a lot of people before yeah. like this is it's not new to me pitching in front of a bunch of scouts and stuff like that so just attack it like a normal bullpen and just trust my stuff. Have you pitched in a big league park? I mean, it won't be a game, but have you pitched in a big league park uh, in like a no. showcase setting? Uh, no, no. this will be my first time. That's cool. That's cool. So, um, one thing I like, I'm always like, I think Wisconsin might be about the most underrated baseball state. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You think about how many big leaguers and first round picks are coming out of Wisconsin, even like in this year's draft. I mean, you're at Alabama, so I don't know that people in this world think, oh, you know, he's from Wisconsin. But like, you know, one of my favorite sleeper catchers in the draft is Drake Baldwin. He's mm -hmm. at Missouri State, and he's from Wisconsin. And like I think the guy who led um, NCAA in contact rate as a hitter is Alan Roden at Creighton. He's from Scott. I can't tell you how many times I'm like I'm like a college guy, and I'll be like, oh, here's another Wisconsin. Or Max Wagner had a huge year at Clemson, and like he was on my radar coming out of I think he was from Green Bay, if I remember correctly. Like I do Wisconsin for the draft, so like it's not like I have a long, but like it just seems like more and more guys, you know, come out of Wisconsin. It's 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 crazy. I mean. The baseball up there is really, really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's uh, there two big travel organizations that have really taken off, the uh, Hitters and uh, GRB. Those two have really been competing with each other and just making each other better, I would say. And we're getting better players out of it. And I want to say, I might have my details wrong, that was, was Jared Kelnick a year older than you? Did yeah, you, a year older than me. Were you the guy who faced him? Like, it was like, I don't know if it was like an indoor setting or some kind of game, because I remember there was an underclassman who faced him when he was a senior. Who had a really good. I swear it had to be you. Maybe, maybe I'm misremembering. I did face him, but did you have I, success against him? Uh, one time, no. He had one about like one time at the first baseman, but okay, okay. Yeah, I, there was a story about a guy with a really good breaking ball who's an underclassman who, who struck him out or something, and I wasn't sure no. if that was. No. Well, I didn't check him out. <laughs> I don't think too many guys did, but no. I can't remember what the guy, what the, who, the, who the guy was. How did you wind up at Alabama, like from Wisconsin? Uh, my. Coach Brad Mohannon, our head coach, uh, he has really good connections with my travel ball coach, and that's how I got introduced to him, and then I just want to play in the SEC, and went from there. That makes sense. I remember Brad from, uh, like, when he was a coach at Kentucky. I always, when, I was, when I was a Baseball America, we would do draft 500. We'd go super deep, so I would talk to a lot of the college recruiters, and I always talked to Brad when he was at Kentucky before he got the, before he got the Alabama job. So that makes sense. It's like, I mean, the SEC schools and Louisville does a lot of, a lot of recruiting up there, too. Like, they're... Yeah, almost all, yeah, like, 
Louisville's almost like uh, Wisconsin, like all the top, like Vukovic and Kalanick, they were all going yeah. there. And like, I mean, this year again, I mean, I mean, I don't know how the drafts, but you get Gavin Keelan, who's really interesting. There's a catcher named Will Vierling, who's supposed to be pretty good. There's a, a big pitcher named Christian Apoor, who, he might even be here. I've lost track of everybody who's here. But like, I, I do think Wisconsin might be the most underrated baseball state. You know, like I remember talking to Owen Miller in the Fall League, and his brother last year was a supplemental pick, and obviously Gavin Lux, and Ben Rorchfitt's been in the big leagues, and Alex Pinellas, who went to Louisville, was just, I mean, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> Jonathan Stever was another one who went to Indiana. It's like crazy, but I, I do think it, it must be the travel ball, because I mean, even though I'm from Chicago, I live in Chicago, so I know the weather is not the best, but like, guys play a lot of baseball. And yeah, I mean, no, we got like hitters in GRB, both have been nice indoor facilities, so you can play a whole sim game there. Yeah. The field. It's really nice. So, well, I appreciate, uh, like I said, it's, I really appreciate the talent coming out there, and I appreciate your time, Connor. I'm looking forward to seeing you, and, and sometime down the road, seeing you in a game again. Because uh, it, it's fun. I just remember back in the COVID year, I had scouts. I mean, you obviously weren't draft eligible, and it was a weird year doing draft prep after the season shut down. But when I was talking to scouts about guys in Alabama, they're like, "Man, I can't wait! You know, two years, kind of prove it looks so good, um, type of thing." So, so I'm glad you're back healthy again, and uh, it'll be kind of fun to see where, where the, the combine and the draft take you. And, and best uh, best wishes for success going forward. Thank you. All right, our thanks very much to Alabama lefty Connor Prelip for talking to Jim at the combine. And Jim, going into the combine, you said repeatedly that. His bullpen was by far the most anticipated uh, part of the combine in terms of on-field performance. Um, and so how did that go? Yeah, and, and as I was saying too, it mattered more for him because as a guy who had Tommy John surgery in May 2021, the only time he's pitched for scouts since then is he threw a bullpen on May 23rd. So this was literally only the second time you would get to see him pitch. And it went well. I mean, he, he basically showed the stuff that he had before he got hurt. And when he, when he pitched on May 23rd, he, he said he wasn't holding anything back, like, like you heard in the interview, but it was raining. You know, he, he wasn't going to go out there and try to pitch to the gun. And, and he, he averaged 93 miles an hour. He topped out at 95. His sliders, his, his big pitch, he was 85-87. He had the highest breaking ball spin rate of anybody. He spun one, one of his spin balls, Jonathan, at, at 3,045 <laughs> RPM, mixed in a changeup. And it was funny, just coincidentally, as I was leaving the ballpark Friday after the six and a half hour broadcast, I bumped into him outside and, um, and I asked him and he said he thought it was more the weather. Like he wasn't trying to pitch to the gun anymore or throw harder, but it was obviously warmer and it wasn't raining. And he was really, really pleased with how it went and talking to teams. I mean, that's what you wanted to see. Again, it's a bullpen. It's not like you saw him go pitch six innings, but he showed you the stuff uh, that he had before he had his, his elbow reconstructed. He, the delivery looked the same. Um, I, you know, I still don't have great feel for where he's going in the draft, but, uh, you know, another little mock sneak preview. I, I don't think I'm going to put him this high, but there are teams in the top 10 who are like working hard on Connor Prelip right now. Um, so I, I think he, I, I think the, the combine could not have gone any better for him. Uh, and again, it seems funny, like talking about, hey, you know, he, he, he did a three-and-a-half-minute bullpen, and it might propel him into the top 15 picks. But in this case, that, that, that actually might be what happens. Well, I mean, and some of it's also 
putting aside that he got to meet with teams, which will certainly help those teams that are at, you know closer to the top of the draft. They've got a chance to to actually speak with him at length, but it's also a progression. You know, you know, previously they had only seen that one other bullpen session. Yeah, it's not a ton of information, but you know, he didn't go out and throw worse than you know it, than he did the last bullpen is you know it looks like he is building himself back up and getting stronger so yes it was only a bullpen session it wasn't against live hitters uh, all, all those things but he's kind of trending in the right direction and this was another sort of step in that direction all right we are going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk a little college world series we will preview this week's MILB on MLB.tv schedule. We'll talk about O'Neill Cruz's sensational 2022 MLB debut, and we will answer a question from the mailbag. All that coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, Jason Ralph here talking about the draft combine. And now we're going to turn our focus to the College World Series with everything else going on. Uh, College World Series is certainly uh, keeping your attention among everything else, guys. And, uh, well, I think uh, some, some of our predictions from last week have been smashed at this point but uh we don't have to talk about those what, what, what should we do somebody picked oklahoma though was was it jonathan it was thanks for shoving that under the rug ratliff <laughs> i tried i tried who you, i know i picked texas which isn't going to happen and and who did you have jason yeah. did you go stanford i did okay well the, well we, we both owe jonathan twenty five thousand dollars i guess because our teams are already well, gone. Uh, no, I mean to be fair, I, I'll happily take the the fifty k, but Oklahoma has to win. I mean I, that that was the. No, that's true. true. It's over. We're, we're we're saying right now, Oklahoma's. Wow. Winning. If Oklahoma, so if, if Oklahoma doesn't win, that seventy five grand goes to a charity. Sure. Sure. All right. So, uh, well, Oklahoma. Let's talk Oklahoma. Yeah, they were a team that 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 really came on late in the season and was playing well, and and I know that they didn't you know they didn't host a regional or super regional, although they. There, there were some people who thought they deserved it. And, you know, I think Jonathan and I are each going to talk about a player. They have two guys who are really helping themselves for the draft right now, too, in addition to, to chasing the national championship. And on last week's show, I mentioned how Kate Horton, who had been one of the top two-way players as well as a, a quarterback in the in the draft two years ago, and then missed last year where Tommy John had really been coming on. And we saw him win the second game for Oklahoma against Notre Dame to keep them in the winner's bracket. Uh, now they're one win away. They, they, they need one win and two tries to get to the finals. And Kate Horton struck out 11. He looked great. The slider was really working. He was throwing in the mid-90s. I, I'm trying to figure out how high Kate Horton can go in the draft. Like he, he really got off to a slow start. He was hitting more than pitching. was kind of generic looking early in the season on the mound. And he's just pitching great right now. You know, Counting the Big 12 tournament where he faced Texas, a, a College World Series team, 36 strikeouts in his last 23 and two-thirds innings, really teaming with Justin Campbell, who's another guy who's helping himself for the drafts. So I guess there's three Sooners, but they, they, I think they have the best one-two pitching punch right there. And about a week ago when I was talking to guys, I was thinking, I wonder if Kate Horton could go in the third round. I think Kate Horton's going the top two rounds now, guys. Uh, you know, Especially, he'll get another chance to pitch, I would think, in Omaha. And if he continues to look as good as he does, 
maybe he goes in the sandwich run. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how high Kate Horton can go, and, and teams are trying to figure out exactly what to do with him because he's really picked it up the last four weeks after – you know, not really like I, if you'd asked me six weeks ago, I would have said, I bet he goes back to school and he'll he'll see what he could do next year as a redshirt freshman. I, I think he just continues to climb draft boards right now. It's funny because, you know, part of my reason for uh, for picking Oklahoma was because, you know, of, of that pitching. Um, I do want to pause for a half a second because Justin Campbell pitches for Oklahoma State. James. Well, I'm sorry. What was that now? I, I, you said Oklahoma State. You, you lost. You brought up Justin Campbell as being the one-two punch. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I meant Jake yeah. Bennett. Did I, did I, I could buy. Yes, so, that's sorry. I, it's like I realized. Yeah, no, sorry it's, about it's that. All, it's all right. Um, and I'm sure people who are Sooners fans are not too upset with that slight. But well, yeah, nobody nobody cares in Oklahoma if you confuse Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. So I'm sure <laughs> I didn't anger anybody by doing that. And I will say, somebody who went to who went to Georgia. I don't know if you guys knew that. You've never mentioned um, went to Georgia. And sometimes when people ask you where I went to school and they're like, Georgia Tech? And it's like, no, not Georgia Tech. I went to Georgia. Like, I'm, I'm perfectly yeah. – if I went to Georgia Tech, I would have said Georgia Tech. So I apologize to the entire state of Oklahoma for confusing my pictures. And, Good. And thank you for the catch. And, you know, at Penn, they literally print T-shirts that say not Penn State on them. Um, anyway, so I, I, you know, I picked uh, Oklahoma because of the that one-two punch of Jake Bennett and Cade Horton. And – and Bennett really wasn't great. Um, now he went six, you know, and put them in a position to win. And Oklahoma scored would have thirteen runs in that opener, but he he wasn't as, as dominant uh, as as he had been. Uh, but he battled through, you know. So he, he showed that. But offensively, you know, Peyton Graham is a guy who I put him in my last mock. I think we both have in sort of the comp round area. You haven't put him in in a, in a first round yet, have you, Jim? No, I've had him in the comp round, but yeah. Yeah, so I've had him in the comp round, but this is a guy who, you know, hit 20 homers. He's hit 20 homers. Uh, you know, he he's played shortstop this year, and he's played it pretty well. Probably ends up at third, but he even played, you know, a solid outfield in the Cape last summer. So he, he's kind of an interesting bat and is off to, although he, although he hasn't hit for, for power, uh, is off to a, a, a five for eight start um, in in his two games uh, so far. So he's swinging a hot bat, um, taking advantage of the fact that you know these are games that are being scouted now because of the draft being later. So uh, as much as we've talked about Oklahoma's pitching, uh, Peyton Graham has continued to show himself as, especially now, one of the one of the the better bats still actively playing. And he's a good athlete, too. And I was just going to throw in there, he got off to a really bad start this year, Jonathan. I mean, about April 1st, his swing and miss rate was huge, and he made some adjustments to his swing has made a lot better contact. So his arrow, credit to him for kind of turning things around midseason, making some changes. And, you know, again, we're not talking about a, you know, hey, he's a corner bat, limited. I mean, this guy's a really good athlete. I mean, he can run, he can throw, he can steal bases, um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I think he's re- like the Sooners have a number of guys who are really, really helping themselves. And my apologies to Jake Bennett for confusing him with Justin Campbell. And Jim, I don't know if you mentioned this when you were talking about Kate Horton, but to, to add a little context, he is not in our top 200 draft prospects list currently. So, right. Cause when we did our last list, I don't have his stats in front of me. I mean, he he's not pitched well. I mean, he, the, when we did our last list, he was coming off giving up eight runs and three and third innings to Texas Tech 
And I believe his ERA at the time was seven. I, I do have his stats in front of me now. 7.94. So uh, I do not feel bad about not ranking him on the top 200, but he will be somewhere in the top 100 when we expand our list to 250. He will, we will, we will get him in there. I, I don't, I, Jonathan, do you have anybody from your half of the draft who's going to rank in the top 100? I, he's going to be, I, I would think, the highest ranking newcomer when we update the uh, list. I'm sure he is. I don't think I have anybody, without looking at it, I, I don't think I have anybody who's going to climb into the top 100 from my group now. Okay. How about, uh, how about somebody from next year's draft class? That's uh, stood out to you. Yeah, well, you know, if you look at the at the other side of the bracket, the undefeated team is Old Miss, which literally was the last team to get in. And again, I, you know, I, I, as you guys know, I used to cover college baseball when I started many many years ago in, in the prospect covering business. I was the college beat guy for Baseball America, and and you know, following a lot of people outraged, you know, Mississippi, you know, snuck in as the last team in the tournament, and they're undefeated. They haven't played home game in the tournament. And their best prospect is not a guy for 2022, but for 2023, Jacob Gonzalez, shortstop who can who can do it all. I mean, he's a legitimate candidate to go number one overall. And I believe, wow, it might have been back in February. I, I want to say we had a listener in mailbag question asking where Jacob Gonzalez and Dylan Cruz from LSU would fit in this year's draft if they were eligible. I mean, Jacob Gonzalez would be up there at the top, you know, getting consideration to go with the, with the very first few picks. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, besides him, it's kind of a veteran team. You know, I think their best 2022 prospect is Hayden Dunhurst, their catcher, who's been banged up and had kind of a rough year. You know, maybe he fits third to fifth round, you know, if you give him credit for playing hurt. But it's really just kind of an older team that, that, that's playing really well. Their best pitcher is Dylan DeLucia, who's kind of a, uh, you know, more crafty than a, than a stuff guy. You know, he'll probably go six to 10. They've got some older hitters like, like Tim Elko, who hit a home run yesterday. Uh, Kevin Graham, who, who also is, he's five for nine with a home run in Omaha. But, it, it, you know, TJ McCants is a, is a decent prospect for this year, hasn't had a great year. Um, but it's, it's, you know, really they're, they're, they're only, you know, big, big time draft guy is Jacob Gonzalez, and he's not even eligible till next year. All right, let's shift gears. Let's skip over the minor leagues altogether. Let's go from draft, skip over the minor leagues, go straight to Major League Baseball. And a guy who Pirates fans have been waiting to uh, skip through the minor leagues for quite some time. And as of today, uh, as we're recording this podcast, kind of the talk of the baseball world after his 2022 debut last night. And that, of course, is O'Neill Cruz. Uh, you know, made his debut last year, played a few games for the Pirates, uh, was not called up with a big league team to start this year. Really hasn't performed too well at AAA with Indianapolis, though he is, had heated up a bit as of late, but had shown glimpses of the tools that, that everybody knew was there over the course of the minor league season did get the call up uh, and right away uh, immediately showing those tools is the first time he touched the ball through the hardest ball that has been thrown by an infielder all year in the major leagues on a, a kind of weekly hit ground ball to short through it 96.7 miles per hour from his shortstop position. Um, 
the fastest thrown ball by an infielder by over two miles per hour this year. And there's only been one player who's recorded one infielder who's recorded a harder throw in the infield since StatCast began recording such things. And that's Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, on three occasions within the first three innings of the game, O'Neill Cruz recorded the fastest sprint speed by a Pirates player this season. Uh, sprint speed being measured in feet per second, uh, recorded sprint speeds of was it 31.5 and a couple of 30 point something 30.0 is considered elite. Uh, and he, he you know, trumped that number three times in the first three innings, once on a ground ball, uh, uh, fielder's choice, once tagging up from third. I think his highest sprint speed was when he tagged up from third to score on a sack fly and then on his double where he got thrown out trying to stretch it into a triple, uh, also reaching over 30.0 feet per second. And then his that double, he hit uh, 112.9 miles per hour, harder than any ball that's been hit by a pirate all year. So right off the bat, just a stat cast darling and showing off the tools that we have long known were there and have been waiting to kind of see him unlock and to see him do it on the big stage in the first game of the year when Pirates fans have just been clamoring for him uh, it was a very exciting night, Jonathan. Yeah, it was. And they scored 12 runs, which, you know, I, sometimes it takes them a week to score that many. Uh, so uh, it, it was it was exciting. And, yeah, the, the tools, no one has denied uh, his raw tools. And he had them all on display. The only thing he didn't do was Homer, you know, which is what he did last year uh, in, in his two-game call-up at the end of the year. So that's why people are clamoring. And, you know, it's been an interesting thing to try to find a balance because people were calling for him to get called up from the get go. Uh, you know, the, the pirates sent him down to triple a ostensibly to work on playing the outfield, which he has done. Yeah, he's, he's started nine games in the outfield. So you know, been a little bit of a, an adventure, but it now is, you know, something that he has, you know, on his resume. So if they want to try to move him around a little bit, although, They've got some young outfielders uh, up here in Pittsburgh. So I think he's largely going to play shortstop and he's shown that he can play short, but you know, really the, the biggest thing with, with him is him showing an ability and willingness just to, you know, be professional and give full effort at all times. Uh, you know, it, it's so funny in, in today's world with social media, you know, he had a ball kind of early in the year, whatever it was, 120 miles an hour off the bat. It was the hardest hit ball, you know, ever, whatever superlatives you want to put on it. But, but the fact of the matter is he didn't make the opening day roster uh, for whatever reason, you know, got sent down and sulked and hit about a buck 60 uh, in April. And people were clamoring then for him to get called up just because they saw a couple of hard hit balls. Now, you certainly could make the argument that he has more upside than anybody else who was playing shortstop for, for the pirates and, and the big leagues to start the season. But that's that, you know, that's not the issue. You know, it, it, it's kind of funny because one of the reasons why the pirates didn't move him off of shortstop at all, since they, they got him, you know, from the, from the Dodgers is they wanted him to maintain focus. And there was a, a fear because he didn't really want to play the outfield that he'd go out there and kind of, tune out and and show you know disinterest which is what people had seen 
it's easy to forget that he's only 23 just because I feel like we have been writing and talking about him. Uh, you know, he's so big. He's shown that he can play shortstop. He's kind of a unicorn in that regard. He, he can do all these exciting things on the field, you know, in terms of hitting the ball hard. He's still learning to tap into that left-handed power. Um, you know, uh, he's got that ridiculous arm uh, and he can throw from all different angles. He can do things that you shouldn't be able to do with that size at shortstop. It's it's a question of him doing it on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and now I think we're going to see how it's going to play at this level. You know, it, you know this is a time the Pirates have been giving opportunities to a lot of young players. Um, you know, some of them are not everyday big leaguers, uh, some of them, you know, sort of profile more as utility guys, but there's been an energy around this team that I've seen, you know, and, and watching them here in Pittsburgh that even though they're not winning a lot of games, the, you can see the, 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 the energy that they're, they're bringing and how hard they're playing. Uh, there's definitely sort of a, we have nothing to lose kind of attitude. And hopefully that rubs off on O'Neill Cruz, you know, especially if he invariably hits, uh, a slump. Now, I will give him credit that after his sulking period, and I don't know if someone pulled him aside or if he listened to someone, whatever, he pulled himself out of it and he was swinging about much better. The power was starting to show up. Uh, you know, he was having better at bats. Uh, I think he was, was checking off all the boxes that uh, the Pirates wanted to see before they they called him up. And I think he is going to get every opportunity to show how those tools that we saw on display, you know, in his first game up here on, on Monday night, uh, how they can translate on a, on a daily basis, you know, especially as the grind goes on. Hey, Jonathan, I'm going to put you on the spot here as our pirate resident pirates expert. I will confess. I'd never heard of Bly Madris before they called him up yesterday. Nor did I. I like, well, that, that was going to be my question. <laughs> like, what, like I, I, I did not realize he was the, the first big leaguer of Palau descent, but uh, three for four, former ninth round pick. I, I, I'd never heard of this guy. And all of a sudden he's, he's raking three hits against Cubs in his debut. Yeah. I, you know, I, I will be the first to admit, you know, we, I do their top 30. He had not been on, on the radar at all. Um, you know, but again, this the the pirates are you know since they they're not expected to uh compete in, in any way shape or form this year uh they have the the ability to give guys opportunities and you never know when guys are given opportunities what you're you know what you're going to find out so uh you know this is uh this is a guy who is putting up very good numbers, you know, in triple A at an OPS over 900. Uh, you know, I, he can play corner outfield. He's played some first base. Um, you know, we'll see what, what he ends up doing or what, what he can be, but he was completely not on my radar as a guy who was, you know, a 26 year old, but one who would put up, uh, good numbers this year previously, you know, been somewhat pedestrian. All right. I want to go back to uh, O'Neill Cruz for just a minute and a, a couple of things that you touched on, Jonathan. Um, and also wanted to, well, maybe I won't break the string yet. I'll, I'll save this. But all right. So first of all, you talked about uh, the tools and his tool set uh, looked like this. His hit grade 
is a 50. His power is 65. His arm is 70. His fielding grade 50. And his run tool is graded at 55. Are we light on the run grade? Can you can you can you say that after uh, one game with three elite no. sprint speeds registered? No, because I, I also you know for me the run grade isn't just about pure foot speed. Now might we end up realizing that we were a little light and he should have been a sixty? Yeah, I could see that, but I also think you know some of it has to do with usable speed. Um, now you know he, he tagged up third and you know that that we're well, but he you know he is shown some ability to steal bases, but like this year in AAA, he had 11 steals, but he also got caught six times. Um, he's been a little bit more efficient, you know, in, in last year he was 19 for 22. Um, so that's some of it. Uh, you know, you talked about his, his showing off really good sprint speed uh, when he was trying to stretch a double to a triple. He also made the first out at third. Now I'm all good for youthful exuberance. You know, he drove in a couple runs there. But also, you know, it's using using your speed to to benefit. Um, so uh, it'll keep an eye on it. You know, he may graduate off the list before we, you know, we actually tweak it. You know, so but I'm not going to just use a couple of recorded sprint speeds in the big leagues as a as a means to to change a run grade. I know what Jason's next question is going to be. No, you don't. Okay. Well, you can ask about the arm grade. That's what I thought he was going to ask. No, no. I'm not. Uh, so first, I was going to just—I was just going to put some numbers on Jonathan. You mentioned that he had—you uh, didn't know whether he had listened to someone after your uh, what you dubbed the sulking period, the sulking era, sulking mm-hmm. stages. Um, but he hit 176 in April, uh, 566 OPS. In May, he hit 256 with 868 OPS, and in June, 277 with an 846 OPS. So the numbers. Certainly bear that out that he was uh, the trajectory was there. He was improving over the course of the season and uh, kind of culminated in his MLB uh, his 2022 season debut. Uh, the one thing I was going to point out is I think is this may be the longest anyone has ever talked about O'Neill Cruz without mentioning the fact that he's six foot seven. I don't think we did, did we? I mean, I mentioned brief. I did mention briefly how you mentioned his size. Uh, yeah, I mentioned how tall he is, and I called him a unicorn, which you know gets overused, but he definitely is one in terms of just uh, no one's seen anything like this. But I did not specifically say that he was six foot seven. You are correct. I don't think. All right, let's look at ILB on MLB.tv slate. Uh, starting uh, again, we're recording this on Tuesday. Tonight's game is a fun one. It it would be fun even if it weren't for the fact that Max Scherzer is making a rehab start for the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Uh, The Rumble Ponies are led by the Mets' big three prospects, uh, Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, and and, uh, uh, Mauricio. And uh, they're facing another top 100 prospect in Redding, Logan O'Hoppy, the uh, Philadelphia Phillies catching prospect. Uh, Wednesday, we have a Yuri Perez start. We've been trying to get one of these on the docket for a while. uh, And he's facing a couple of top 100 prospects. and uh, Joey Weimer and, and Sam Frelick with Biloxi. That's uh, Pensacola Biloxi on Wednesday. Thursday, Great Lakes at Fort Wayne as Diego Cartaya against Robert Hassel III, Bobby Barrels. We're going to go ahead and dub this one Diego Dingers versus Bobby Barrels. Um, and then we have 
Altoona's stacked lineup again against New Hampshire. Henry Davis, Quinn Priester scheduled to start that game. Uh, Leo Rapuero back with Altoona after his brief stay in the big leagues. And Aurelvis Martinez, uh, top 25 overall prospect for New Hampshire. And then on Sunday night, we've got uh, Amarillo and we'll spotlight Corbin Carroll, uh, one of the uh, biggest names in the prospect world right now, will be featured in that Sunday night game. Um, all right, well, let's wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. This one comes from Michael Bradley at Balls and Gutters on Twitter. Is it a bowling question? Are we getting a bowling question? It is. Throw you for a loop here. Uh, now, it looks like it's actually baseball related. If the Mets were able to get Drew Jones to fall to them by promising him $10 million signing bonus, uh, drafting seniors for the remaining slots, would this be able to happen, and why hasn't anyone done something like this yet? It can't really happen. I mean, this goes back to – I've used this phrase before on the podcast – where guys are, are prisoners of their own talent. Someone like Drew Jones, let's say he threw out a $10 million price tag. I just think the teams at the top of the draft would take him. You know, maybe the Orioles, you know, we, we've talked how they might take Turmer, but like the Diamondbacks love Drew Jones, Jonathan. I think yep. the Diamondbacks would just say, great, you can say you want $10 million. We're going to take you. We're going to offer you, you know, $7.5, 8000000 million, and there's no way you could possibly turn that down. If you, if you go back to just last year, if you remember, there was a lot of buzz that the Lighters wanted Jack not to go number two to the Rangers. They wanted to go number four to the Red Sox, and they were going to make it happen. And what happened? The Rangers took him at number two, and he signed with the Rangers. So I, I just think it's impossible. If a guy's that talented where you're going to give him $10 million, somebody else is going to offer him enough money that he's not going to be able to turn it down. Yeah, and I think you know, what, what are his options? You know, is he going to go to school? Uh, and not that he couldn't go to school, but he's not going to get more than top of the draft money. So and there have been instances of uh, players trying to do something like this uh, and it just doesn't work. I mean, I think the example that I, I always think of is, is Jay Groom, uh, who was at the top of our draft boards talent-wise. He was a high school lefty from New Jersey, and he's now with the, the Red Sox. And uh, they were clearly trying to push him down uh, to, the, to the bottom part of the first round, and the Red Sox just said, we're taking him. Uh, and, and in the case of Groom, he didn't really have – too many options. It was clearly probably, you know, he wasn't likely going to, to go on to college. I know he would have had to go to junior college probably. Uh, and he signed, you know, and they didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to go nuts in terms of stacking up a bonus to, to get it done. So I think more often than not, if someone who's that, I like how you, how you, you put it, Jim, in terms of the prisoner of your talent, someone is going to take a guy before who's that talented before he gets, to the place you're targeting. And in the, in the, in the case for, for this question, uh, there is no way that there isn't someone between the Orioles at one and the Mets at 11 who won't say, you know what, we're just going to take Drew Jones and, and try to figure it out. And it's going to be one of those top couple teams. So the bonus, I, I agree with you, Jim, like there's no way that if, uh, you know, and let's say, let's just say the Diamondbacks don't take them. I think the Rangers will take them at three. 
you know, and, uh, and again, is he going to walk away from $7 million or h- however much they can stack up, you know, to, to get that done? I, I don't see that happening. So, uh, they could certainly try to do that. Um, but I think the second part of the question is the most important part and why we wanted to answer it in this week's podcast is I think there is some thinking that players can manipulate this system to, you know, to get them to a specific team and it just isn't going to work, especially with a player this talented. Yeah, exactly. Like I'll even go back even further. Mike Trout tried to do this and I don't know exactly what he was trying to do, but back in 2009, the night before the draft, word came out that Mike Trout wanted $2.5 million, which was roughly what the commissioner's office had slotted for the fifth overall selection. And if teams believed that, that that was serious, he probably wouldn't even gone in the first round and the angels, you know, loved him, felt like they had a good read on him, took him and signed him, you know, within a couple of weeks for less than half of that. Well, and that was before the bonus pool system too. So yeah, like, that, that was, yeah, that was the unofficial system, but it was the same yeah. thing. Like back then, if you wanted over slot, three quarters of the teams would just back away from you and not take you, including the angels and the angels wind up, you know, signing for slot. But yeah, it's just, again, like I, like I have no doubt in my mind that if Drew Jones put out a $10 million price tag, the Diamondbacks would just take him at number two and sign him. So it, it's it's good to dream about, and it's funny. I, I don't know if you get uh, like like I get it. Always annoys me because you get like usually at some point during the draft cycle, Jonathan, you'll get you'll, there'll be some stories by people who don't usually cover the draft or like oh so and so wants X and he might fall here and he's going to drive himself, and it just doesn't work that way. The, the, the teams know how the system works. Are you saying that Michael Bradley rolled a gutter ball here again? What's his question? Oh, I see what you did there. No, you know, actually, I I like I, I nice nice bowling uh, uh, pun there. I, I like that he asked this question because I think the average fan and a lot of writers who don't cover the draft full time think that this is easily manipulable. You know, the Mets have two first round picks; they've got this giant pool, but it just doesn't work that way. Like you know, similarly, you'd get asked when this system came into play, like, what if a Bryce Harper came out and he only wanted to play for the Yankees? The Yankees would just sign him and give up two first round picks and blow up the draft. And my point is you can sit there and fantasize about it. If you have a Bryce Harper in the draft, teams aren't going to let him fall to the Yankees at the bottom of the first round. They're just going to take him to the top and pay him. And and what's he going to do? I mean, is Drew Jones really going to turn down if the the Dimebacks take him at two and say, we're going to give you $8 million? Is he really going to say, well, no, I I have to have 10. I'm not budging. I'll just re-enter next year's draft. That's just never going to happen. All right. Michael Bradley, thank you for your question. Not a gutter ball whatsoever. Thanks to Connor Prelip for talking to us for this week's podcast. And thanks to everybody for listening. That's going to wrap up this week's episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.